This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter. And wow, the mixed martial arts world seems to have come up with all kinds of reasons why the judging criteria must change, why things are not what they should be after last weekend's Holly Holm versus Ketlin Vieira main event which, in my opinion, was an incredibly close fight. I mean, I, I think you could really go either way on the scorecards for that one. But for whatever reason, this decision seems to have turned the mixed martial arts world on its head. People are incensed about Holly Holm getting robbed, about, you know, why don't people understand the, you know, why, why, why are the judges scoring fights this way? Why? I don't understand. It's not like there's a one-page document out there that explains the, the entire scoring criteria and how, how judges score fights. That couldn't be, right? You type in mixed martial arts scoring criteria on Google, it's not like it's going to come up as the first or second result, right? Wrong. And that's why I put together this week's monologue on whether or not Holly Holm was indeed robbed. <laughs> The big question coming out of this weekend, was Holly Holm robbed? Now, two years ago, I probably would have been part of the crowd that said she was robbed. What's wrong with these judges? What are they doing wrong? How do we fix judging? My teachable moment came at UFC 259 when I scored the first three rounds of the main event between Jan Bojovic and Israel Adesonia for Israel and took a massive L in the public eye. And believe me, I'll take a beatdown from Justin Gaethje on Twitter any day rather than in the octagon. Since then, with the help of my fellow media member Sean Sheehan, some judges who I've spoken to and rewatched fights with, and most importantly, Mark Goddard's online judging course, which is an invaluable resource that I highly recommend, I became very well versed on the scoring criteria in MMA. First off, let's look at the reasons for why people thought Holly Holm was robbed. Point one, look at the stats. This is always the first line of defense after a supposed robbery. The problem is that these stats are from the broadcast and are done in real time. They are inaccurate. If you're going to point at stats, go to ufcstats.com, which provide the official stats. Additionally, not all significant strikes are created equal, so stats can be largely irrelevant. Point two, look at how others scored the fight. People will often point to websites like Verdict and MMA Decisions to solidify their point. I love the Verdict app and the fine Canadian gentleman that created it. It's a fun app to make predictions on who wins and by what method, and to be part of an online community of MMA enthusiasts who score fights together. But comparing a viewer at home or even a media member, both of whom may not be educated in the scoring criteria to accredited judges, is comparing apples to oranges. Point three, Holly had 10 minutes of clinch control time. Those who have glossed over the scoring criteria will point to the fighting area control section or the tertiary criterion, but they are either missing the most important point or worse, ignoring it to bolster their argument which is that this part of the criteria is only used if the priority criterion, effective grappling and effective striking, and the already very seldom used secondary criterion of effective aggressiveness are 100% even, which is almost never in the eyes of a seasoned judge. In fact, it's written right there in plain English. This will be assessed very rarely. The clinch is a useful tool for neutralizing an opponent or tiring out an opponent whose cardio you doubt will hold up down the stretch. It's a means to an end that doesn't score, but can help slow down an opponent for gains in the later rounds. Was it a precursor for Holm having such a strong fifth round? Maybe. That's the value of the clinch for a fighter. But in the scoring criteria, it is essentially a neutral position. And in this instance, both fighters were landing on each other. In fact, based on the official stats, 
Vieira actually landed more than 50% more significant strikes in the clinch than Holm did. Before we go any further, my goal here is not to prove that Vieira won the fight. In fact, in real time, I scored at 48-47 for Holly Holm. However, going back and re-watching the third round, I would change my scorecard to 10-9 Vieira. Either way, I'm not dismissing a scorecard for either fighter in a close fight, but this was definitely not a robbery. Let me explain why. At cage side, we have three seasoned judges, Mike Bell, Derek Cleary, and Sal D'Amato, who scored the fight exactly the same with the exception of round three. If they all had rounds one, two, four, and five scored the same, it is hard to argue against the consensus score among three very seasoned judges. So let's focus solely on round three, and before we do, let's take a look at the scoring criteria. It's approximately one page of a four-page document that goes over the primary, secondary, and tertiary criteria. Let's start with the primary or prioritized criterion, which is often the only thing being assessed in a fight. 99% of the time, a seasoned judge will have enough data to analyze in a five-minute round to make their determination based on this. Legal blows that have immediate or cumulative impact with the potential to contribute towards the end of the match with the immediate weighing in more heavily than the cumulative impact. In other words, damage trumps volume. Successful executions of takedowns, submission attempts, reversals, and the achievement of advantageous positions that produce immediate or cumulative impact with the potential to contribute to the end of the match with the immediate weighing more heavily than the cumulative impact. It shall be noted that a successful takedown is not merely a changing of position, but the establishment of an attack from the use of the takedown. So in other words, if you're going to use the takedown or the clinch, you're trying to get an advantageous position, use that to accrue damage. Top and bottom position fighters are assessed more on the impactful, effective result of their actions, more so than their position. So if you've taken someone down, you better be using it in order to accrue damage. This criterion will be the deciding factor in a high majority of decisions when scoring a round. The next two criteria must be treated as a backup and used only when effective striking and grappling is 100% equal for the round, which again is very, very rare. And that's why when we look at stats, we have to remember that not all significant strikes are created equal. Then we have the secondary criterion, which is very seldom considered when scoring a round, followed by the aforementioned tertiary criterion, which is considered even less frequently than the already rarely utilized secondary criterion. With that information in mind, go ahead and rewatch the third round and you can make your determination. There's a great video on YouTube by someone named The Weasel, who did a strike-by-strike -strike breakdown of that round. A couple of takeaways from the aftermath of the fight. Does Holly Holm have the right to be upset? Absolutely. Controlling an opponent in the clinch is hard. Clinch work is grueling, and Holly worked hard to achieve that position and hold it. If you look at the verdict app, or showed someone who was unfamiliar with the scoring criteria, that fight, and at the end asked who won, most would probably say Holly Holm did. However, the onus is on the athlete and their coaches to learn the scoring criteria inside and out, and understand that controlling in the clinch without accruing immediate damage is risky, unless you are confident that it will wear down your opponent down the stretch and help you win in the later rounds. And then there's Daniel Cormier, who was calling the fight cage side on Saturday, who released a video the next day called The Price of Leaving It to the Judges on YouTube. One thing he said that particularly stood out is, once again it's on the judges, once again they keep on making these mistakes, or we don't know what the hell we're watching. You'll be hard-pressed to find anybody as knowledgeable about the X's and O's of MMA, with the ability to explain what is happening in real time as Cormier or Paul Felder, Dominic Cruz, Michael Bisping, Big John McCarthy, or my colleague at TSN Robin Black. They've called hundreds, sometimes thousands of bouts, so they absolutely know what the hell they're watching. But they're watching it through an entirely different lens. Heck, everyone is. Their job is not to figure out who's winning the fight in real time based on the scoring criteria. It's to relay their expertise on what's going on in the cage in real time to the viewing audience. 
Whether you're Cormier, the brilliant John Anik, another media member, or just someone who wants to cast the final leg of their parlay and wants Holly Holm to win, we're all watching it through an entirely different lens. The judges are cage side watching through a singular lens. Their sole focus is applying the scoring criteria to the data that is in front of them and making a determination on who is winning each completed round. That's it. They're not paying attention to commentary. They're focused on scoring each fight as accurately and fairly as possible and making assessments based on the guidelines that they know like the back of their hands. And judges will have differences of opinion on which strikes were more immediately impactful. They're all watching from a unique angle. These judges have worked thousands of fights over the years, and the three scorecards submitted were identical, save for a single round on one judge's scorecard, the closest round of the fight. This is the controversy that's setting the MMA world ablaze? This is why we want to fix judging? Because one round on one scorecard of a five-round fight was different? And most people thought that judge was the one who got it right? So I sat in my office on Saturday night, and I figured it out. I did it. This is how. We eliminate these so-called robberies in MMA. It's not more judges. It's not better judges. Heck, good luck finding them. And while I'm open to experimenting with things like open scoring and have long been a proponent of the half-point system, here is how we eliminate robberies in MMA. Education. Ed-u-cation. Four syllables that point to four pages. The MMA judging criteria is less than four full pages long. If you are a fan of MMA, a coach, fighter, media member, someone who wagers on MMA, read it with your morning coffee, during a bathroom break, during your lunch hour. It will take you all of five minutes and you will better understand how fights are scored. I promise that you will see a lot less robberies in the future if more people understand how the judges are scoring these fights. And because I'm your friend, I'll make it easy for you. tinyurl.com slash scoring criteria. It will forward you to the official scoring criteria for mixed martial arts. Read it and go back and watch Holm versus Vieira through the lens of the scoring criteria. You may still have it scored for home. You may have it scored for Vieira, but I'll tell you this. You will have a deeper appreciation for what these judges do week in and week out. And you will know emphatically that this fight was not a robbery. Just a close fight, and we have lots of them. I'm Aaron Bronstetter, and this was The Monologue. All right, that was The Monologue, and you can look forward to The Monologue on a weekly basis. I'm going to be churning them out every single week. Uh, at least the weeks that I'm working, you know, every now and then Manny's a vacation, and this would have been one of those weeks, and I, I did take a day or two off this week, given that there's no UFC event, but I can't help but look at the mixed martial arts world through the lens of social media and see that people, for whatever reason, are fed up with the way fights are judged, but nobody's willing to actually put in the work to understand how they're judged. It's, it's, it's just something's wrong with the scoring criteria, something's wrong with the judges. No, something's wrong with you you can admit that something's wrong with you, that's probably the best first step in this situation. Because if you're looking at the scoring criteria and you go back, let's say you, if, you, if it was fresh, let's say you just read the scoring criteria and you went and you watched Holly Holm versus Ketlin Vieira and you walked through it round by round in the lens of the, the scoring criteria, you could score that fight for Holly Holm, you could score that fight for Ketlin Vieira. Either is a perfectly all right answer because that third round I thought was very close. But how can people say that there's an issue with the judges when the scorecards are almost exactly the same? Why, why are they the issue and not you? Like, if they're, if they're all completely aligned on this, with one judge's scorecard having one round scored differently, why would you think they're the problem? And whether it's because you had bet money on Holly Holm and maybe she was the last leg of your parlay, something along those lines. Maybe if you're a coach in the sport who, for whatever reason, hasn't read 
the scoring criteria or a fighter for whoever whatever reason hasn't read the scoring criteria i saw mike winglejohn came out or i don't know if it was winglejohn but the jackson wink mma twitter uh instagram page put out this statement about judging and about uh, i'll read it to you here it, I, I just it, it boggled the mind that this is what their reaction to this sort of thing is Put a quote from uh, Daniel Cormier's video, the one that I referenced uh, in the monologue. Judges need to be held accountable for making mistakes, just like everyone else is held accountable. Well, let me stop you right there. Why aren't you held accountable for not understanding the scoring criteria? Shouldn't you be accountable to your fighters? Shouldn't you be accountable for not understanding how fights are scored? Let me continue. Penalized and punished for wrongdoings. Judges are not above everyone else. Why are their decisions so untouchable? And are never overturned. If this is not fixed, the legitimacy of the sport is in question. P.S. What's the point of counting strikes if they don't mean anything and judges don't even look at the stats? What do they go by? Well, they have a set of eyes, do they not? Listen, do you want stats to be the determining factor of, of how fights are scored? Like if somebody lands 200 strikes versus somebody who, who lands 60 strikes but scores 4 knockdowns, like should the person that landed 200 strikes win because they had higher stats? This isn't baseball. We're not looking at runs. The judges are there to look at the fight through the lens of the scoring criteria. If you don't know the scoring criteria, it's not them that need to be accountable. It's you. You need to be accountable. You need to be accountable to your fighters. You need to be accountable to everybody in your gym because you haven't taken five minutes. That's all it takes. Five minutes to read the scoring criteria. Why are the judges the ones that are accountable? I was talking to my wife about this yesterday, and she doesn't watch any MMA. And I told her that I just, it boggles my mind that so few people, and I was one of those people, so like, listen, I'm not, I'm not a saint here, but that so many people don't understand the scoring criteria. And, I, and the way that we put it together, like the, the best comparison that we could come up with is if two players were playing basketball, one of them knew the rules, the other one didn't know the rules, and one player shot four three-point shots in the game, and the other fighter scored five layups, five dunks, five baskets, five any other baskets that aren't three-pointers, two-pointers, field goals. And that player at the end of the game spoke to the media and said, I don't understand how we lost that game. We scored more baskets. Ultimately, we scored more baskets than the other team. And somehow they won the game. Like that's what the, That's what it's the equivalent of. Because if you're looking and saying, oh, look at the stats and look at... You're not looking at how the fights are scored. You, like, it, it just makes me nuts sometimes. And then you see guys like Dominic Cruz on the MMA Hour. Oh, the, these judges aren't qualified. They've never taken a leg kick. No, they've never... First off, most of these judges have intense, mar, you know, an intense martial arts background. Uh, a diverse martial arts background and an extensive martial arts background secondly the scoring criteria was there's was guidance from the rules and regulations committee of the abc that included the likes of matt hughes jeremy horn randy couture guys that have been in there for i mean look at how many fights jeremy horn has right like these guys and not to mention that those three guys utilized wrestling a lot of the time to win their fights Randy Couture was, I think, a Greco-Roman, was on the Greco-Roman Olympic team or something along those lines, if I recall. I don't have the notes in front of me, but I mean, these guys would be all for grappling 
being a big part of what's going on. But no, they came up with the scoring criteria and what should be emphasized in martial arts. Because at the end of the day, the criteria is a good thing. It's, it's making it so that fights are more exciting, that fighters are, you know, rewarded for doing actual damage in a fight, as opposed to holding and stalling and clinching. Because nobody wants to watch that. Nobody wants to watch 10 minutes of clinch control. So I've seen a lot of people that are glad that Ketlin Vieira won for that reason. Like, you shouldn't be rewarded for 10 minutes of clinch control. The reward is in tiring your opponent out with the clinch. Those rewards are reaped down the stretch if you believe that your clinch work is going to exhaust them. It's not that it's that clinching shouldn't be rewarded or isn't going to be rewarded in the fight, but based on the scoring criteria, it's not causing any damage, and damage is paramount. I don't know. I'm getting tired of talking about it, to be honest. I've listened to so many different segments, so many different people talking about it, and... I actually spoke to Mike Mazzulli from the ABC the other day, and he's like, he's incensed too. He's beside himself. He's got, all these people are, like he says, you know, I understand that there are fights where maybe people disagree with the judges, but this was a close fight. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, so this is what Dominic Cruz says to the MMA hour. The commission set up a meeting for us announcers on the scoring system. Well, who's setting up the meeting for the commissioner on what a takedown is? As I mentioned, rules and regulation committee. They know what a takedown is. They're former fighters. Who is setting up a meeting for the commissioner on choosing what a takedown is? Again, a takedown is... It, the, the, what a takedown is is defined in the scoring criteria. That know what it feels like to get hit with a calf kick compared to a high kick. I've had to feel that feeling you know, to know you have about three to five of those kicks before the muscle and the nerve pretty much shuts down. Well then, shut it down. Then the judges don't get into it. Finish the fight. How many of these judges know that? Know that? Know that feeling? Know that after you get taken down five times by Habib on number seven, even though he didn't do any damage, it took seven takedowns to get that dude down. Well, that that doesn't even make sense. But I'll continue. How tired is that guy? They've never been in that position. They don't know how miserable that is. Well, if they're tired, their strikes aren't going to have the impact, and you, they're going to lose rounds. That's that's why wrestling is important in MMA, because you can utilize it to debilitate your opponent to the extent that they can't do the kind of damage that they want to do to, to make them have to change their game plan. So I just don't understand what Dominic Cruz's point is. Because when I spoke to Mike Mazzulli, he says like they invite the fighters every year, or the commentators and the fighters and the coaches, every year to come to the, the ABC's annual convention, which I will be attending in, summer, in this summer. It's in Niagara Falls, New York, so it's like a two-hour drive from my house. So I'm happy to go. I'm glad that it's in Niagara Falls. It's, that's great news for me. Now I can actually go to this, which I, I'm excited about this. But this isn't like some nerdy analytics fest. This is an important part of the fe- of the sport. Like the, the, the coaches need to learn this. Like if they don't know the scoring criteria, like they're just doing a massive disservice to their fighters. And I keep telling people, the coaches in the sport are incredible. Because they're always looking to be a step ahead of the other coaches. Like if there's a new technique that somebody... Like calf kicks, for example, that Dominic Cruz brought up. Calf kicks, when Benson Henderson started doing them, people started to become wise to them and had to learn how to adapt to them and teach them. And the coaches are always trying to be a step ahead of the other coaches. 
Eugene Behrman, I think, is a great example of that. He, he seems to be a step ahead of a lot of the other coaches, but they're ignoring the fact that they basically have a cheat sheet in front of them. Like, the, 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 the scoring criteria is there to be taken advantage of, really. Like, if you're able to train your fighter to fight with the knowledge of the scoring criteria or, or what scores in a fight, you're going to give them a massive leg up. I compared it to buying a cabinet from Ikea and not reading the manual. No, oh, we have the cabinet. Let's build it the way we want to build it. Shall we? I don't recommend anybody does that, by the way. That would be a bad idea. Use the manual. But that's what it's there for. So either way, I just think that right now, like, is this the hill we're going to die on? Is it the home versus Vieira fight? Like a close fight like this? This is, this is our, our come to Jesus moment where we're going to say this is, this, is the fight that need, this is the fight that proves that we need to change. Come on. Get out of here. It just bugs me. It bugs me that people just don't put in the work and then point fingers. Put in the work. Doesn't take long. So that's uh, where that fight left off. It's just, you know, people think that Holly Holm got robbed. And listen, hey, if you thought she won the fight, I'm totally cool with that. Listen, that was a close fight. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed that monologue. That's something that I'm going to be doing, I believe, every week. I'm going to try to do it every week. It's a lot of work, but I don't shy away from hard work. I embrace hard work. Let's embrace that grind. And do a, a weekly monologue video. As you can tell, Joe Valtellini is not with me this week. If you listened to last week's show, he's going to be on with me a little bit more sporadically, namely before major events. You know, he's he's got a lot on his plate. He's running a gym. He's coaching fighters. He's got <laughs> he's doing commentary for for Glory. He's just having a lot of problems. It's not that he doesn't like doing the show. He loves doing the show, but the way that he explained it to me, and I think to our audience last week was that he doesn't want to have one foot in and one foot out. You know, if, if he's not going to be able to watch the fights every Saturday, because, again, he's running a gym, and the gym's open on Saturdays, and these cards are starting at 4 p.m. Eastern. And by the time he gets home, he's pretty tired from a day of coaching and being, being at the gym, right? So basically he said, you know, if I'm not able to, to do this the, as best as I can, I, I don't want to do it at all. And I totally co-sign on that, and of course... Joe has been doing the show for so many years and giving me his time and being so generous with his time that, uh, of course, I understand. Why don't we look at the remainder of the Holm versus Vieira card? We don't have any major North American promotions putting on events this weekend. I believe we've got Cage Warriors out in the UK and um, KSW in Poland with some events and, you know, among other promotions that are doing things this weekend. But no Bellator, no PFL, no UFC. So let's do a bit of a recap. We got Michelle Peheja defeating Santiago Ponzinibbio. Another one where people were very confused by the scorecard because one judge gave uh, Pereira a twenty a thirty twenty seven round, which we had three. Those I mean the first round I don't think was close, but say, rounds two and three were really close. I personally gave Santiago Ponzinibbio the third round, but I I think you can make a case that Pereira won that round because I thought Pereira was landing the more impactful shots, and I thought that he was being a little bit more economical with those shots and picking his spots rather than throwing volume. And Ponzinibbio hits hard, too. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Ponzinibbio. But, uh, yeah, it was a good fight. Second round was was very close as well. Third round, very close. And Pereira gets the nod. But uh, a lot, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, who, you have to have give Ponzinibbio one of those rounds, don't you? The judges don't look at it that way. 
they get their scorecard. They do the round. They hand in their scorecard. And then it's a brand new round. It's a fresh start. You have to almost ignore what happened in the previous rounds. You have to look at each round as its own embryonic being and judge it for those five minutes alone. So I, I, I can see a case for giving Pereira the third round. I, I didn't personally again, but I, I can see a case. Chidi Njokowani with the highlight of the night. Big elbow against Dushko Todorovic. You know, this, is a, this was a bit of a funny card for me because on Saturday, we had this massive storm in uh, Toronto and in, you know, much of this part of Ontario. I believe people in Ottawa are just getting their power back today on Thursday. <laughs> I mean, it's a wild. So uh, if you're listening to this on TSN Radio Ottawa, I mean, kudos to you for hanging in there for that long with no power. I know it's a luxury, but at the same time, I mean, you lose all your food in the fridge, and it's not fun. But, uh, yeah, we had this big storm. So I was watching the card up until Njokowani. It was actually up until the co-main event. I was watching it on my phone on data. So I had it buffering, and I had it like, you know, it was a blurry photo at times, and sometimes it just would stop, and I'd have to lose two minutes of the fight. So... I wasn't scoring a lot of these rounds until the the final two fights with like a fine tooth comb. I was watching it on a phone, you know, just hunkering down by my screen, hoping the battery wasn't going to die. So that was a unique experience because I'm not used to watching fights that way. I'm used to watching it on my TV and being dialed in. Instead of just getting annoyed that it's crashing on me every now and then. But, you know, a lot of people were, of course, using the uh, 5G and LTE networks because they had no power. So worked with what I had to work with. So, you know, if you're looking for an analysis on whether or not Jung Young Park versus Eric Andrews was a, was a robbery, you've come to the wrong place. But uh, great highlight win for Chidi Njokowani. This guy has really, I, I mean, I, said, I, think it's, I don't think it's harsh to say he turned his career around. He was just a total, I mean, there was a time where he was 17-4. But since he was 17-4, he's gone, before joining the UFC... He was four and four and four, I guess. Three and four? Or three and three? Three and three. In his last six before joining the UFC. Actually, two and two and three before joining before being on the contender series. So he gets on the contender series, wins TKO elbows. And now he's won three in a row. The last two in the first round, both by KO. And this guy's not uh if you look at him historically. He has a first-round finish here or there, including one over Andre Fialio, who's made a lot of noise in the uh, UFC this year. But he's gone to a lot of decisions, a lot of three-round decisions, five-round decisions. Like This guy's just been around for a long time. So for him to come into his own at age 33, I mean, good on him. He's looked great so far in the UFC, so kudos to Chidi. Tabitha Ricci defeats Pollyanna Vienna. Another one where uh, at least I saw the manager, Alex Davis, uh, Pollyanna Vienna's manager, who also manages Norma Dumont. Like, he's been managing a lot of... I can understand his frustration. His fighters have been in really close fights. So if you don't really fully grasp the scoring criteria or you're also looking at things through rose-colored glasses because they're your clients, I understand why he's frustrated by what's happening. It seems like a lot of his fighters are on the wrong side. And he was saying, and I thought I think this is a very reasonable case, is that it seems like sometimes the judges are rewarding control. And he said that he thought that that was the case for this fight, Ricci versus Vienna. And in some cases they're rewarding damage. I didn't get to watch this fight completely because it was, again, it was buffering in and out. So I can't give you a great 
you know, I couldn't give you an accurate scorecard for this fight. I'll just say that from what it looked like to me, Vienna was landing good strikes on the feet, but kept either getting taken down or pulling guard. And then from there, Ricci was kicking her legs up. You know, that like, that's damage. That's not control. Control isn't standing over an opponent and kicking their legs, although Vienna was firing back, but still. And then there was, again, Jung, Jung Young Park against uh, Eric Anders. I don't really have a strong feel for this one. Again, it looked like a very close fight to me. Um, and obviously that was uh, that was the case, but it seemed like a lot of people thought Anders got the uh, drew the wrong, the short straw when it came to the judges. Although isn't drawing the short straw good? Drawing the short straw can be good. So I don't know how good that expression is, but either way. Joseph Holmes defeats Alan Emadovsky. I got to watch this whole fight without uh, any buffering issues, and Holmes looked good. I mean, the thing about this opponent is that, like, Alan Emadovsky, in terms of first three fights in the UFC, I mean, this guy's got to have probably among the least inspiring performances of anybody in three fights. So here's, here's his three fights. His first fight, he loses to Christoph Jotko, lands six significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. Six significant strikes in 15 minutes. So for those counting at home, that's one significant strike landed every two and a half minutes. Yikes. Not great. Loses in 17 seconds to John Phillips. So five, he lands two strikes in the first 17 seconds and loses to John Phillips. And then in this fight, he gets knocked down by Joseph Holmes in the first minute of the fight. Is able to hang in there for a bit and then gets submitted by Joseph Holmes. Amadovsky lands one significant strike. So in his three fights, he's landed a total of nine significant strikes. His strike significant strikes landed per minute is 0.55. That means basically he's landing one significant strike every two minutes in his fights. That's not great. So, I mean, I don't know what to make of a Joseph Holmes win over a fighter that, that has had that kind of a track record in the UFC. And again, I'm not trying to disrespect Alan Amadovsky here. The guy's got good power. Uh, you know, before he got to the UFC, it was 8-0, including two wins in, in Bellator. So I'm not trying to put the guy down. I, you know, obviously he earned his place in the promotion, but I'm just saying his first three fights, I'm sure he would agree with this. You're not seeing the best version of Alan Amadovsky. So it's hard to make something of the Joseph Holmes win. Uh, Jailton Almeida defeats Parker Porter. Almeida moving up to heavyweight for this one. I think he weighed in like the 220-something range. But man, his skill set, if he can put on another 10 pounds and fight in like Stipe weight, like 235, you know, Cormier weight, and then somewhere between 235 and 245, with his skill set at heavyweight, he could be a real problem. Because if this guy takes you down, like you're in big trouble at heavyweight, because a lot of these guys aren't working that hard on their, their takedown, A, their takedown defense, and B, their get-up games, at least as much as the, the lighter weight classes, so Almeida... This guy could be a real blanket at heavyweight. Plus, he's dangerous. He's always looking for finishes. So, let's see if he stays at heavyweight. If he does, he could be a real problem there. Because even though a lot of these guys are going to have big, like, 40, 50-pound advantages on him on fight night, if that's what he's going to be weighing in at, like, I think Porter probably had about 50 pounds on him. If he's able to just withstand, like, one or two strikes and get a takedown, like, I mean, it could be lights out for anybody fighting at heavyweight if you're not able to defend that. And if you're looking right now at heavyweight, you, you know, we don't have a lot of Fabricio Verdooms, guys that are getting, you know, big submission wins or very, very dangerous with their submission game. At least nothing, nobody that pops up in my mind. I mean, Tom Aspinall's got a good grappling, it seems, but don't know, don't know if we've seen enough of it. 
Uros Medic. Medic, I think it's pronounced. Back in the win column over Omar Morales. This guy, this guy hits hard. This, this was actually his latest career finish. It was second round, three minutes and five seconds. He's won all but one of his fights. He lost to Jalen Turner in his UFC debut, but he's 8-1. and one. And all of his wins, except for this one and one other one, which came one less than one minute into the second round, they've all come in the first round. So this guy is uh, this guy's a finisher. I, I'm interested to see how, how far he can go. Jonathan Martinez defeats Vince Morales. You know, again, this is this is one of the cases I have against open scoring. Like, if there was open scoring for this fight, do you, do you not think that Vince Morales' corner knows that he's down going into the third round? I understand in a close fight that it's good to have, but I don't, don't know if you necessarily need it in cases such as this. But Jonathan Martinez with a clean sweep, 30-27 across the board against Vince Morales. Morales looked pretty good in the third round, but... He just couldn't solve the puzzle, and Martinez was coming at him with everything he had. I would say one of the most impressive performances of the night has to be Chase Hooper defeating Felipe Colares. Just just the innovation, just the way that he's able to flow with the fight and go wherever it goes and find escapes and find advantageous positions and tire out his opponent. And His striking game looks like it's much improved, like it's a bit tighter. Kudos to him. That was a great win for Chase Hooper over Felipe Colares. And I've got to say, now, I'm not going to take full credit for the win, maybe a little bit. Because uh, earlier in the week in Twitter, on Twitter, I was talking about how I have my new morning beverage concoction, which is coconut water mixed with two, maybe three shots of espresso or cold brew over ice with some milk. And that's what I drink now. A lot of people don't think that coconut water works with coffee, but it, it does. In fact, I think a lot of things work with coffee. If you took, if you took coffee, like a cold coffee, iced coffee, and you make, put it in a blender with like a banana, it would probably be fine. Probably be good. I haven't tried it. Maybe I will. But coffee is a very versatile beverage. Coconut water, maybe not so much. But I bet you if you mix like lemonade and coffee, it would taste good. I'm going to try that tomorrow. I know that a lot of places sell orange juice and coffee mixed together. I'm going to try lemonade and coffee. See if it goes together tomorrow. I'll report back next week on my findings. You know, Dana White does his Friday thing. Maybe I'll do that with beverages. But I won't make you know. I won't put it. I won't steal it and put it on Instagram. But I'm 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 very open to trying new beverages. I digress. I put that recipe out on Twitter, and Chase Hooper, after weigh-in, said, I've, "I saw you post this recipe, and I've been waiting all week to try it, and it says it's good." So, I've now dubbed this beverage Victory Juice. So, congratulations to Chase Hooper for drinking the the sweet nectar of Victory Juice and getting a win over Felipe Colares. Nice to see him back in the win column. Sam Hughes. One of my uh, picks for TSN Edge was Elise Reed, and that was a terrible pick in hindsight. Elise Reed's really good on the feet, but she on the ground. She just does not know what to do when she gets taken down. And the other thing that I forgot about was that Sam, Sam Hughes is coached by the great Safe Saoud from Fortis MMA. And in her last two fights, she has looked, and that's when she, those are the two fights she's been training under Safe. She's looked phenomenal. So, Sam Hughes. Much bigger problem than I think I gave her credit for. Nice to see her do her thing. That was a dominant, dominant win. And to get a finish also in the third round, well played. Good job by Sam Page. Bonuses went to Michelle Pajeja. I don't know if it's Pereira or Pajeja, but either way. Versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. Performance of the night, Chidi Kawani and Chase Hooper. So uh, $50,000 richer each one of them. So that's uh, this past weekend's card. And I'm not going to preview next weekend's card because 
next weekend is next weekend, and we can do that on next week's show. But a couple of notes from the World of Mixed Martial Arts. Paulo Costa versus Luke Rockhold is now being moved to August 20th, which I believe is going to be UFC 278. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's when UFC 278 is going to be. And the rumor is that's going to be in Salt Lake City, but that has not been confirmed as of yet. Um, interesting city to hold a UFC event in, but uh, hey, if it's a good card, I'll go and I'll tell you uh, how Salt Lake City is as a, as a place. I, uh, I like Salt Lake. Uh, sorry, I like traveling to new U.S. cities, rather. I don't know if I like Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake yet. I've never been. But a <laughs> great city, never met it. But I, I'm, I'm eager to go and check it out at some point uh, if I can. I think that that would be a, an interesting place to travel to. What else we got? PFL 5 announced. Good card there. Anthony Pettis versus Stevie Ray. And uh, that, that will join some of the featherweight and heavyweight uh, fights on the card. Armand Sarukian is taking on Mateusz Gamrot at UFC Fight Night on June 25th. It's the uh, main event, five-round fight. That is a great fight. Like if that, this is, you know, Alexander Kaylee, sorry, not Alexander Kaylee, sorry, wrong person. Uh, Shaquille Majuri from CBS puts something out saying, "Is this the UFC main event with the worst name value ever?" Well, putting that aside because I, that's a totally subjective thing to ask. I will say that this is a phenomenal main event. These guys, I mean, Sarukian is one of the best up-and-coming fighters in, in the UFC right now. And Gamrot, coming over from KSW, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this guy's work in KSW, whew, this guy's a monster. Like, these guys are great fighters, like in, in, one of the, in the best division in the sport, possibly, 155, and could also be bantamweight, but 155 pounds, I mean, you look at these... These two fighters, like they're both have huge upward trajectory. This is this fight, I believe, is going to tell us a lot about how good Armand Sarukian is. I think we all know how good Gamrod is at this point. Sarukian's looked fantastic, but this is a. I mean, I know he's fought Islam Makhachev, but this is a pretty big step up in competition. And I think the winner of this fight is like going to be one of the next ones at 155 pounds. Manon Fioro will be taking on Kalen Jukagian at UFC Paris. I love this matchup. Love it. Because I think Manon Fioro is hugely on the rise. I think that if this is a stand-up fight, I think Chukagian's going to try to initiate a lot of wrestling in this fight personally. But if this is a stand-up fight, this is going to be so much fun to watch. And you don't often say that about Chukagian's fight. No disrespect. A lot of them have gone to the... In fact, she doesn't have a single finish, I don't believe, in the UFC. But I actually like Chukagian's fighting style quite a bit. So I'm not trying to, to, to slag her at all. I think she's a really... She, I mean, obviously she's a great fighter. Nobody can beat her outside of the champion. So this is a great matchup because I think that if Chukagian wins, she's right back. Like she's probably going to get a title shot next because she's accepting a fight against somebody who's one of these fighters that people are talking about, has a lot of buzz, but hasn't really, you know, fought anybody that's I guess ranked between two and ten, and she's getting the top contender in the division right away. You know, usually if you're Caitlin Jukagian, you want to take a fight against whatever, three, four. She's probably beaten them all already, to be honest. I don't have the rankings in front of me, but... Yeah, I mean, th- this is a great fight. It's happening in... She's taking the fight in Paris, where Fioro's from. <sighs> just kudos to Caitlin Jukagian. I'll just put it that way. Because this is um, a high-risk, low-reward fight for her. 
But again, I think that the reward is that she's showing, like, hey, I'll go to Paris. I'll fight this this person that everybody thinks is going to be champion one day or is going to at least fight for the championship one day. So good on her. I do worry, though, that if Fjord wins that fight and ends up facing Shukagin, or sorry, that ends up facing Shevchenko, that Shevchenko is just going to, you know, throw around. But that being said, Shevchenko needs to beat Tyler Santos in a couple of weeks. And I know people will probably laugh and say, ah, that's a silly thing to say. She's not going to... Tyler Santos is legit. Watch that fight. I, I, I bet you that fight is a lot closer than a lot of people think it's going to be. I might be actually picking Tyler Santos uh, for TSN Edge based on the value. What's the, what's the line on that right now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull that one up. Let's see, see if there's a line on that one just yet. All right, according to our friends over at FanDuel, Valentina Shevchenko is a minus 750 favorite and Tyler Santos plus 530. At those odds, I'm taking her. Like, I'm taking her. Sorry. And I think Valentina Shevchenko could be the best in the world right now. But I just think people... This is one of those spots where people are just... They don't know enough about Tyler Santos. And they're completely overlooking her. And I actually spoke to Valentina Shevchenko today. That interview will be coming up next week. But basically... She, I said this to her. I go, I think Tyler Santos is extremely dangerous. I think this is a, a tough matchup for you because nobody has any, nobody's giving her any sort of credit going into the fight. Nobody, in fact, I don't think a lot of people know who she is. And she was like, well, I don't look at it. I don't care what people think. She goes, I, I look at every challenge as a unique challenge. I study them. I mean, listen, Shevchenko's a professional. I, I don't think, I won't doubt what she's saying there. I think that that's probably 100% true. She probably knows what she's getting into here. But when I saw Tyler Santos on... Uh, the contender series, I thought to myself, this girl has something. She's really good. So, um, looking forward to, to seeing how that one goes. But uh, I digress because we were talking about Jukagian and, and you know, Manon Fiora, and I got taken off track. But, you know, we just let this frame of this, uh, <coughs> pardon me, stream of consciousness go through. I was quite sick last week, by the way. I bounced back, but... Uh, the COVID detector did not detect the COVID, but I had a, a bad flu of some sort last week. It was not fun. And it's still lingering a little bit. It's, you know, it's peeking its ugly head out every now and then. So let's see what happens with a lot of these fights. I think they're very interesting, uh, especially that one. I, I really like that particular fight. I saw that uh, Alistair Overeem is going to be facing Badr Hari in, a, in a, the, the third fight between these guys in kickboxing. That's going to be fun. That's a throwback right there. If you're a longtime kickboxing fan, you should know what to expect with that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. So there we have it. I think that, uh, that will cover this week. But next week, I've already, I think I've already got, unless something wild happens in the world of mixed martial arts, I think I've already got my monologue plan. I think you're going to like it. I think it's going to make a lot of people think about things. That's what I want these to do. I don't want to put things, something out that's like, this guy is a great fighter, and you know he's got what it takes to be a champion. No, no. I, I, want, to, I want to stimulate your minds and make you think deeper about this wonderful sport of ours, mixed martial arts. Now, before we go, I did do an interview with Bobby Maximus, who is on the Ultimate Fighter 30th season this year, but was also under the moniker Rob McDonald, his actual name, on season two of The Ultimate Fighter. And he's Canadian. So I got a chance to sit down and talk to him because 
he is fighting next week on The Ultimate Fighter. But an interesting story. If you look back at uh, Rob McDonald or Bobby Maximus, as he is now known, his last win was against Elliot Marshall on December 1st, 2007. Like, who was the champion in the UFC at that, at that time? And he hasn't fought since 2009. So it's been 13-plus years since his last MMA fight. And he's on the ultimate. He's going to be fighting. I mean, I think the fight's already happened <laughs> that, that, that we're going to be watching next week. But he's he's fought. <laughs> Let's just say that. He might, once, maybe twice. I don't know. We'll find out. But uh, he was the last pick for Team Pena. And he's taking on the first pick from Amanda Nunes. So interesting circumstance for him. And we'll find out how that fight came to fruition right now. Here's Bobby Maximus with yours truly discussing his stint on The Ultimate Fighter. Well, regardless of what happens on The Ultimate Fighter next week, just know that this man, Bobby Maximus, is uh, a true inspiration. To be able to do what you're doing uh, after so many years away from the Octagon, I think is uh, something that we should all really look up to. Yeah, no, thank you. I, uh, I always tell people I'm blessed. A lot of people really want to go on the show once. I had the opportunity to do it twice. Yeah, so here we are, and it's been, I guess, 14 years almost since your last win, which was against Elliot Marshall, uh, someone who does a lot of the same kind of things you are now, it's motivational speaking, trying yes. to inspire people, and I know you guys have developed a, a friendship over the years. Yeah, that's correct. Elliot uh, was, you know, a big fight for me, but over time, we've become the same person. We both had reasonable UFC careers, and we propelled it into something much bigger. And that's one thing that people don't understand about the UFC. It's not just while you're there fighting. It gives you the opportunity to do so many things down the road and help so many people. Um, we both have a huge sense of gratitude for the UFC and have turned it into something bigger. I'm curious, how did you get onto the Ultimate Fighter, really? You haven't fought in a long time. What was the whole process like to get back on the show? You know, a big part of it was just running through the application. It's an extensive application. You have to prove you're capable uh, you have to get licensed to the Nevada State Licensing Organization. Like, it is quite an ordeal, but I went through it. Uh, they accepted me and found myself in the in the thick of things. Well, we've got an interesting circumstance for the next episode because usually when someone matches up the last pick on the show against the first pick on the show, it's usually the team that picked the first pick. But it was actually your coach, Juliana Pena, who made this matchup, which I just find so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I wanted it, to tell you the truth. Uh, I was picked last, and to be honest with you, I should have been picked last. Like, you're talking 15 of the other people in the house with me. That makes 16. You're talking 15 of the best fighters on the planet. I'm 43. I hadn't fought in 12 years. Like, yeah, I was the last pick. I get it. But my thing is to constantly prove people wrong and to take a chance at your dreams, no matter how uphill the battle may seem. So I'm like, give me the number one guy. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to win, if I'm going to lose, it all goes through number one. So might as well swing for the fences. So is that the conversation you had with Coach Pena behind the scenes? Yes. I mean, that's exactly what I told her. She's like, who do you want? I said, I want the number one pick. Nothing less. Let's go after him. Well, given what Juliana Pena was recently able to accomplish, I can understand her relating to that kind of a mentality. Yeah, she was all over it. And why not? Here's the other thing, too. The, the first pick, second pick, third pick, it doesn't really matter. There's only one person that can come out of the house. So, like I said, it doesn't matter who you fight, where you fight, how you fight. You just got to win. Well, I mean, the last episode is a very good example of that. You have somebody who came in on four days' notice to replace another fighter and comes in and gets the victory. So, I mean, like you said, it's, yeah. it's win in advance. 
it was absolutely fine. And you see it all the time. Like, I know we're talking talking fighting here, but the Leafs got knocked out by Tampa Bay this year. And, you know, by all, uh, all, all accounts, the Leafs probably should have won. They didn't. Like, the bottom line is you can't hide in sport. You can't run. Like, you just have to be able to fight anyone, anywhere, anytime, or compete against anyone, anywhere, anytime. Was a lot of the, I guess, reason for coming on this show is to use it as kind of a platform for lifting people up? Because that seems to be what you're all about on, on your YouTube channel and what your life's goal kind of is. We live in a, in a rough world right now. There's a lot of unhappy people. And there's a lot of people that spend their life in bumper-to-bumper traffic. You know, there's all kinds of people in Canada stuck on the 401. They're, they're going to work for a job that they don't like. They're not passionate about an employer that doesn't care about them. And that person probably had a dream. And they're really scared to try and go for it, to swing for the fences, to blow up their life and shake things up a little bit. And part of my reason for doing this is I want to inspire people to go after your dream. You're never too old. You're never in a position where you can't just try. And sure, it's scary. Coming back and fighting after 12 years, it's kind of insane. But what's more insane is waking up every day and wishing you could do it or wishing you could try. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I guess it's about setting goals. And that's something that has been a big mantra of yours as well, setting goals and then conquering them. No, absolutely. And I always tell people, I think I retired too young. I retired to look after my son. I was a primary caretaker. I really wanted to look after him and be the best dad I could be. But along the way, every time I would watch a UFC event, every time I'd watch a pay-per-view, I thought maybe I could still do this. And that voice was always there. And it was time to put that voice to rest time to really just go after it and in the process inspire people to chase their dreams and inspire my kids and show them what they should do when they're older well, speaking of inspiration you were a light heavyweight to start in the heavyweight division now but look at glover Teixeira and him becoming the champion i guess he's around your age were you very inspired to see him be able to do that no absolutely and i've always said this we have this idea in society that when you get over 40 you're done like you could be in the prime of your career glover's one of them but I mean, from a different sport, look at Tom Brady. He's 44 and arguably the best quarterback in the league. Like, it's it's incredible what you can do. Never let age hold you back. You're from Canada. We didn't mention this off the top. So you're a Canadian who now lives in Utah, I believe. But what was yes. your upbringing like in Canada? What, what, what's your background? Where did you practice? Where did you train? Where did you go to school? I, I, I want to hear everything. Yeah, I'm Northern Ontario proud. So I'm from the north. I'm from a small town called Cape Real, which is outside Sudbury. Uh, you know, grew up in a modest household, very, very blue collar. Um, I ended up going to St. Charles College in Sudbury. And I always tell people that the fabric of the North, it's a little bit different. People are kind, people help each other. And frankly, people work really, really hard. And so that's been kind of woven into everything I've done. And it's with me everywhere I go. Yeah, I guess for those that don't know, Sudbury is mostly known as a mining city. They have the big yes. nickel there. That's correct. And, and the type of people you get there, some of the hardest working, but at the same time, kindest and most grateful people you'll meet. And I'm always proud of where I'm from. So where did you get into mixed martial arts in Canada? And where did you train? And who were some of your you know, mentors growing up? I got into mixed martial arts. I mean, I always wrestled. Uh, I wrestled up north. And then I went to the University of Western Ontario, wrestled there under a coach named Ray Takahashi. And then when I retired from wrestling, I, I say I retired. I was done university. I found a guy named Sean Tompkins, who's one of the pioneers of Canadian mixed martial arts, took me under his wing. And the next thing I know, I found myself in the UFC. Yeah, I mean, for those that don't know Sean Tompkins, without him, I mean, Canadian mixed martial arts is probably still, uh, you know, a burgeoning 
thing up here. You look at a lot of the early pioneers yourself, uh, Sam Stout, Mark Hominick. They all came through Team Tompkins, and it's obviously a shame that, unfortunately, Team uh, sorry Sean Tompkins had to leave us so early in his life. Yeah, that's correct. He was a great man, uh, incredible competitor, great coach, and and like I said, like a real pioneer in mixed martial arts. Who are your uh, some of your favorite Canadian fighters right now? Uh, yeah, when it comes to Canadian fighters, Mark Andre Barrio is one of my favorites. Uh, I think he's an up and comer. I think he's got a ton of talent, and I think you're going to see big things from him in the future. So, uh, really excited to watch that man's career. And what was it like being in the the Ultimate Fighter house again? I know it's a different house this time around, but uh, still the same experience. Except this time, you had you have three kids that you had to leave at home uh, in order yeah. to compete in the show. It was it was harder in ways because I had to leave my family at home, but it was also a lot more rewarding in ways because when I was in the first ultimate fighter house, I, I didn't have a sense of gratitude that I have now. And I didn't have a sense of what it would do for me. Uh, going in this time, I really was able to take a moment and soak everything in, like to live with 15 of the best other fighters on the planet, to get to be on TV, to work with some of the best coaches in the world. I really knew what I was going into and I was really able to savor it this time. And finally, I noticed on this last episode, you took kind of a mentorship uh, role with some of the other fighters. Uh, the fighter that was uh, departing from the house, you had some nice words with her. Are we going to see more of that as the season goes on? Is, is you kind of being, is some, as someone who has so much experience, not only in fighting, but in life, somebody that is there to help a lot of the fighters along? You know, I mean, I hope so. I made a decision a long time ago that I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate to be able to move from the north very fortunate to get all kinds of incredible opportunities all over the world. And I made the decision that I wanted to give back. So no matter where I find myself, no matter what walk of life I'm in, I always want to be able to help people, motivate people. And if I can offer some knowledge, that's a really good thing. Uh, you know, there's that whole aspect of paying it forward. I think that as human beings, the way to make the world a better place is just by being the best person you could be being kinder, being nicer, helping other people. And so I really made an effort to try and help the other fighters, uh, talk to them, be kind to them, and give them any advice that may help them because I've been through this. And uh, it was really honored to be able to do that for some of the fighters on the show. If you watch the second season of The Ultimate Fighter, he was Rob McDonald. He's now Bobby Maximus. And uh, on behalf of Canada, we're rooting for you. And I think it's a fantastic story to see you get back in there and do your thing again. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right, well, that's a wrap for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you. Thank you for hanging in there with me as I rant and rave about why the scoring, why the judges are, you know, not, not bad at their jobs. Unlike what lots of people will have you believe, these guys actually work incredibly hard. They care a ton about the sport. After fights, they're all, they're all talking to each other on whatever, WhatsApp or any of these group chats, and they're always like, breaking down rounds they watch rounds together they have me you know i don't think people understand how involved a good amount of these judges are and how seriously they take their job so when i see people that don't give a modicum of time to reading the scoring criteria slag them and after they did a great job on the main event on on saturday not a good job a great job on the main event on saturday to see them get slagged and to see them, their names dragged through the mud, I won't have it. Everyone else are the ones that, ha that are the problem, not them. I won't say everyone else, but everybody who's, who's blaming them. Go read the scoring criteria and rewatch home. 
I, I mean, I hate to make you rewatch that fight. It wasn't the most exciting fight, although watching it through the lens of the criteria is interesting. It makes it a lot more interesting if you're watching it through a brand new lens. So read the scoring criteria, at least just the first page. That's all you need to read, really, is the first page of the criteria. It's not even a full page because it's got a mission statement at the top. If you watch the fight through that lens, I think it becomes a, a more interesting fight because now you're, you're probably thinking, huh, who won that round? I mean, there was a lot of control time, but if we're looking at just damage, and damage is what's paramount here in terms of the scoring criteria that they've been using for five years. It's not like this is a new scoring criteria. It's five plus years has been getting used, so people keep calling it the new criteria. It's like if you walk down, you got your, you're walking down the street with your, your kindergarten kid, and they're like, hey. Someone's like, hey. They're like, yeah, this is my new kid. Well, it doesn't look like a newborn. It looks like he's walking. He's got a backpack. Yeah, it's, uh, no, it's, it's my new kid. But he's, how old is he? Five. It's not a new criteria. It's just new to people that are reading it and discovering it for the first time. Unearthing it. Read it, and then rewatch that fight. And feel free to reach out to me on social media if you have any questions or if, you have, if you're interested or if you've changed your perception on the fight. I had one person say, you know, thank you. I, I watched your video. I read the criteria. And I, knowing how the fights are scored, I would score round three differently. I scored for Vieira. And that's what I did. I rewatched it. I, I thought it was for home on the night of. But uh, I rewatched it, and I, I, I would change my scorecard if, if I could. Uh, obviously, if you're a judge now, you, if you're a judge, you don't have that opportunity. But... Yeah, I, I just think that it was a lot closer than people are giving the judges credit for so go back and watch it do yourself a favor and do me a favor and do the sport a favor and do the judges a favor let's let's cut them a little bit of slack here if we're seeing 14 alignment on 14 rounds with the two judges that scored it for Vieira oh sorry 15 rounds I, I guess 15 rounds because they were aligned and then 14 rounds for the person that scored it for home is aligned to the other judges. I've got these numbers. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, if you took, take all three. They agreed on 14 rounds combined. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you know what I mean. <laughs> There's one outlier. It's the third round. Saldamato's going for Holly Holm. That's the one thing. So just go back and watch it. That's all I ask. Maybe we'll circle back on this conversation next week, but... We have a main event with Jarzinho Rosenstroik versus Alexander Volkov. That's the headliner for next weekend's UFC Fight Night card after a weekend off this week. So enjoy your weekend off. You know, if you got a Saturday night, you don't need to find some combat sport. I mean, hey, if you want to watch, like, you know, the Roley versus Gervonta Davis fight, feel free. I mean, listen, I'm not going to tell you what to do on your Saturday night, but either way. Enjoy a, a UFC-free Saturday, a, a, maybe an MMA-free Saturday. Get out, do, do something fun. Maybe listen to this podcast again. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more fun than that. But until next week, thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.